This is Christopher Mad Dog Russo's Digging Up the Past, an historical podcast taking a deep dive into the 10 greatest Major League Baseball teams to never win the World Series. Welcome, folks. Digging Up the Past, Christopher Russo. We give you the third season of our podcast series and subject matter of this one, the 10 great baseball teams that never won it. And the teams that we choose... We got a caveat. The core of that team does not go on to win a World Series. Give you an example. The 34 Tigers, 101 games loaded. Cochran, Goose Goslin, Hank Greenberg lost the World Series to the Cardinals, but then they came back and beat the Cubs to win it all the following year. So that particular Tiger squad does not qualify. This particular episode, we focus in on the 1977 Kansas City Royals. And of the 10 teams that we have chosen for this series, in my opinion, you can make an argument the Royals might be the best one. Well-balanced ball club, a lot of experience. George Brett, the future Hall of Fame third baseman, a good supporting cast. Hal McRae, Amos Otis, Al Cowens all in the outfield. Good infield with Frank White and Freddie Patek up the middle. John Mayberry, big John Mayberry at first base. Well-balanced offensively. I love this stat. Listen to this. Impressive. Eight players on their team had 50 or more RBIs. And also a big-time manager. That's Whitey Herzog. He's a future Hall of Famer, of course. Never won a World Series here. He won one later with St. Louis. And according to baseball historian and legendary broadcaster Bob Costas, Herzog was excellent in that dugout. I believe if I had to pick one manager who I have personally seen and known with no disrespect to anyone else, including Hall of Famers, in many ways, Whitey Herzog is the best manager I have ever seen in terms of his impact on shaping a team and in-game strategy. His teams, both in Kansas City and then especially the next decade in St. Louis, were extensions of him and his baseball philosophy. The Royals were an expansion team in 69. 69, they came in. Remember, the A's left to go to Oakland, and the Royals got a ball club, or Kansas City got the Royals a year later. But it took only into their third year for their franchise to have its first winning season. So they had some success right away. And then in 75, when Herzog took over as their manager, remember, he was a longtime player, personnel director of the Mets. He took over midway through the 75 season, and away they went. They won 91 that year, finishing second in the American League West, and then won the franchise's first divisional title title in 1976 there of course that great series against the Yankees best of five ALCS they lost our heart-wrenching winner take all game five on the walk-off homer by Yankee first baseman Chris Chambliss despite that loss George Brett and the Royals gained a lot of experience from that series that was the mentality it was the first time any of us had ever been in the playoffs and to go to you know play the New York Yankees and take them to five games and end up losing on a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. It gave us a lot of confidence. Yeah, it's done. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, again, we were a young team, never been being in the playoffs before. And it was a great, great learning experience for us. Prior to the 77 season now, general manager Joe Burke uh, made a good move. He beefed up really two areas of the team. He got another starting pitcher, Jim Colburn, and then he brought in Daryl Porter, good hitter, good catcher, both from Milwaukee. Brett, a big fan of this deal by the front office. When we got Jim Colburn, he just brought a, a great outlook to the ball club. He was a fun guy to be around. Daryl Porter, I mean, man, that guy was a gamer. He really was a gamer. He played hard and wouldn't take no for an answer. I mean, he was, 
he was uh, just a, a great teammate, and uh, I really liked playing with him. And Jim Colburn was a lot of fun to be around. He made he made the game fun, even when things were going bad. All right, so they're a year in. Have a little experience. Classic series against the Yankees. So as we are set to embark on the 77 campaign, Bob Costas knew that the Royals would be good and very difficult to beat in that home ballpark in Kansas City. Kansas City was one of the few artificial surface stadiums in baseball in the American League, one of the few American League stadiums with artificial surface. That team was tailored to play in that ballpark. Not overwhelming power, but some, but also great speed, the ability to take the extra base. They were a daring and aggressive team. Gap-to-gap ballpark and opposing teams, especially those outfielders, would struggle with the turf. KC pitcher Dennis Leonard explains. You know, it was hilarious at the time. Our outfielders obviously were well aware of that carpet. You know, we played on it all the time. And if that carpet got a little bit wet and teams with slower outfielders came in, they were so used to playing on grass that, you know, ball hit, they kind of went over there. They were going to backhand it and, you know, would have been a single. But when that ball hit that turf, it just shot by them. I mean, the inside the park home one runs there were crazy. And that was because of the outfielders weren't used to playing that. But, you know, our players understood that. Um, the outfielders, uh, you know, if that ball was hit in that particular gappy area, so to speak, they went right back to the wall. They were going to concede a double but not give up a tripler inside the park home run. So that was a definite advantage for us. Royals, despite the 76 season and good optimism and a trade, they got off to a so-so start there in uh, 1977, had some trouble. A matter of fact, by the end of June, only three games over 500. All-Star game approaches in mid-July. They're getting anxious. They're worried, trying to regroup, bounce back a little bit. Leonard remembers being a bit concerned when Royal owner Ewing Kaufman came into the uh, locker room to address the ball club. Our owner at that time, Mr. Kaufman, I mean, he really never came into the clubhouse to talk to us. He might come and visit, but at the All-Star break, he came in there and had the whole team together. And basically, we thought we were going to get chewed out for not being, quote, up to the potential that we should be playing. But what he did, he handed out, he gave everybody like $250, $300 to say, hey, forget about the first half, go out and take your wife out, have a nice dinner on me, and, you know, bingo. I mean, that, that kind of spurred us on a little bit. Instead of getting chewed out, we were being more encouraged to go out and do well. And when we got back from the All-Star break, you know, things just started to go and go and go. And So Leonard likes the cop and encouragement. He thinks it helped propel the team in the second half. Brett looks at the particular series against the division-leading White Sox as the key moment of the year. Well, I remember going into Chicago, and I think we had a four-game series, and we were pretty tight with them, and they swept us. And about a week and a half later, they came to Kansas City, and, and, and when they swept us, you know, they were na 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 off yeah. the field, and they were all great games, and there was... You know, they're sold out at Comiskey Park, and it was just a crazy, crazy series there. About a week or 10 days later, they came to Kansas City for three games, and we nod-nod-nod them out of town. We swept them three straight, and I think that's when we caught our stride. When we came back and beat those guys three straight, uh, we were really, really, really good the last two months of the season. 
All right, George's memory isn't perfect, and let's not blame him. 44 years ago, I wouldn't get it right either. The White Sox did not sweep Kansas City. They won three of four in that series. They meet again the first week of August, the Royal three-game sweep. Away we go now, just a game back of first place. Now, listen, we could tell the story of the 77 Royals without this next tale, but let's have a little fun, huh? Why not? As the Royals started to play better, the sports world took notice including a lady that fans knew well at the time, Morgana the Kissing Bandit. Now, she was an exotic dancer who made a name for herself by running out of the field during ball games and kissing athletes. It started in 70. She ran out of the field and kissed Pete Rose on a bet. Morgana was her blonde. Certain assets that inspired author Hank Davis to write, the woman makes Dolly Parton look uh, <clears throat> developmentally delayed. So while the sports world had their eye out for Morgana in August of 77, she had her eye out on George Brett. I had heard about her, and all of a sudden I hear a commotion as I'm stepping into the batter's box, and I see this gal running in home plate, and, and uh, when she ran, everybody could could tell she was running. <laughs> she was very well endowed, and uh, she came up and gave me a kiss at home plate, and uh, and then she did it in the All-Star game in, in, in Seattle, too. She came and got me again. But I think the next night we got rained out. And I found out where she was dancing. And so I went there and I talked to the bouncer at the place. And I said, hey, Morgana came up and kissed me last night on you know in front of 35,000 people. I want to run up on stage and kiss her tonight. And it was a surprise to her and I did it. And we've been best friends ever since. And just, you know, I get Christmas cards from her and her family. It's, uh, it, was, it was something special. All right, let's get back to baseball. August 16th, halfway through the month, the Royals are uh, 13 over there, 64-51. They're two games back of the White Sox. Need a spark to separate them from the rest of the pack. Whitey Herzog was our manager. He didn't like to take up the lineup card. So he would just give it to a different player randomly, and he'd say, hey, win me 10 games in a row, I'll buy you a Cadillac. So sure enough, he hands me the lineup card, and I win 10 games in a row. And so I go in after the game, and I go, hey, where's my Cadillac? He says, double or nothing. <laughs> At the end of that 10-game winning streak, the Royals had gone from two back to three up on the Shy Sox. Wasn't the end, though, of their hot play. Listen to this. A few games later, they follow that up, with a 16-game winning streak. Oh, my gosh. 10 and then 16. They drop a game to Seattle and then another eight. That is an incredible streak. It's unbelievable how good they were. They caught fire. They won 24 of 25, 38 of their last 47. Dennis Leonard sheds insight on his team's mentality during this hot streak. Winning streaks are winning streaks. I mean, you go out each day, you play the, the game that, you know, that day, and hopefully you come out on top. And when we got to that point, uh, it builds momentum. You know, we won today, and it doesn't only build momentum for a team. I think it builds momentum for hitters and pitchers also because, you know, you don't want to be the one that loses that game and that streak. So, you know, it puts a little bit more pressure, but fun pressure to go out there and perform to the best of your abilities. All right, the Royals win the American League West. They go 102-60. and 102-60. and 60. So here we go again now, postseason. This is going to be a fascinating series against the Yankees, who, of course, are the defending American League champions. MLB Network's Tom Verducci says it looked like Kansas City, though, for a change, was on their way to a fall classic. Uh, they finished the season just like gangbusters. They were on an incredible stretch the last month and a half of the season. They did look like... 
the team to beat. I know the Yankees were defending American League champions, but it was easy to look at the Royals heading into the postseason and saying, you know, that team is going to come out of the American League because they were that good. You know, we always kind of talk about the Yankees and the Red Sox being baseball's best rivalry, and obviously over 100 and some odd years, going back to the root trade, you know, it probably is. But this Royal Yankee rivalry in the late 70s, it is as good as it gets. A lot of good players. They did not like each other. And they played four great series between 1976 and 1980. Brett shares a story that really sums up the disdain that these teams had for one another. Lou Pinella slid the third base one time on a pretty close play. The throw was offline. And as I, as I went off the bag to get it, not only he was sliding in the third, but he tried to kick me with his spikes, and I was standing three or four feet off the bat. And I said, Lou, what the hell are you doing? And he basically told me where I, what I could do to myself. <laughs> and uh, Lou and I were teammates my first year in the big leagues, and then he got traded to the Yankees. I always thought Lou and I were pretty good friends, which we are now, but when you played the Yankees, you didn't have friends. All right, here we go now. ALCS, Royals have home field. That's important. It's the best of five. First two are in New York. Next three are in Kansas City. Remember, the year before is the other way around. First two is in Kansas City. Then they finished up at Yankee Stadium. Game one in New York. The Royals uh, send Paul Splitoff. He's a tough lefty. Won 16 regular season games. Goes up against Don Gullett. Remember, Gullett was on the 76 Reds, and the Yankees got him as a free agent in the off year. That's, of course, Steinbrenner. Splitoff pitches well in this game. Eight innings, allows just two runs. The Royals, they remain red hot. They get six runs in the first three innings against Gullet. Easy win. They're up a game. In game two, the Royals hand the ball to Andy Hassler. He's a tall lefty. Can be intimidating. He goes up against Yankee lefty Ron Guidry. Before Guidry, of course, really blossomed into be the great pitcher. Guidry the following year won 25 games. New York leads 2-1, top of the sixth, when Brett steps to the plate. He's at the belt. 1-2 pitch to Brett. Curveball bounce to Nettles at third to second. For one, and McCray takes, and Al Patek is going to try to score, and he will score. And the ball game is tied. McCray knocked Randolph down, threw a rolling block on him, and while Randolph was on the ground, Patek scored from third base. I mean, McCray basically took winning Randolph to the left field bleachers. I mean, that was an incredible slide. He would never get away with it today. You go check that out on YouTube. Willie. Uh, who was a young player at the time, and McCray was a tough son of a gun. Uh, this is the Yankee rivalry at its highest now, and this is what these two teams are all about. Dennis Leonard remembers the play well and says it was a clean, hard-nosed baseball play. Yeah, that's the way Hal McCray played. I mean, a lot of people look up to George, but Hal McCray, I think, in my opinion, was the inspirational leader. I think if you know, you ask George, you know, who would he want to? copy of the way he played I think he would probably say Hal McRae Hal played hard and back then you know that was legal and Hal did it better than anybody else I mean and then you get to a situation where it's you know magnified even more because it it is a playoff we're playing in Yankee Stadium and you know Willie Randolph got that ball for a double play relay and Hal took him into left field and subsequently if everybody thinks back to that Guess what? <laughs> that rule has changed, and they called it the Hal McRae rule. Again, you remember that Chase Utley slide in the postseason against the Mets a few years ago? This is as bad. Worse. I mean, he literally took Willie <laughs> out the short left field. <laughs> I love McRae. It was a famous play. All right, the, listen, that play does tie the game, though, at 2-2. So it's 2-2, middle of the sixth inning, but the Yankees, they'll score three runs in the bottom of the sixth, 
and they end up winning the ball game and tie the series at a game of peace. But the Royals got what they wanted, which was a split. So they, you know, go back home. If they win two of three, they win the pennant. That's important. It was a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Game three, Royals send Leonard to the mound. He won 20. I go up against Mike Torres. Leonard, best pitcher all year long for Kansas City, and Herzog elected to hold him back into game three to pitch at home. Now, you can have a problem with that because that means Leonard only goes one game and doesn't pitch twice. Does Leonard have a problem with Whitey's decision? I was comfortable with it. Uh, you know, the Yankees always stack their lineup with left-handed hitters in the Yankee Stadium with that short porch. Obviously, the right decision was, you know, to go lefty again and try to take some of their left-handed power out of, out of the game, which worked out real well. And, you know, coming back to Kansas City, you know, back home cooking and a lot more comfortable, no hotel, no this or that, and, you know, went out and, and pitched. Unfortunately, I got to win. He was masterful this night. He went the distance. He was overpowering. One earned run. Great performance. Royals up two games to one. Could Kansas City close out their rivals and advance to the franchise's first World Series appearance in just their ninth season? Stay tuned for more of Digging Up the Past right after this. There's plenty more ways to listen to Mad Dog Sports Radio than turning to Channel 82. Miss any of the shows live? They are all available on the SiriusXM app. Great video content from Morning Men, Adam Shine, and the doggy himself. Have a laugh with Bab Chick from the basement. Plus podcasts like Digging Up the Past and the Adam Shine Podcast. And make sure to check out the Mad Dog interviews and highlights tabs for more great content. It's all available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. So easy to use, even a dog can do it. This could be it. Lou Canella calls for it, waiting for it, and makes the catch. The ball game is over. The Yankees win it 6 to 4. I was at Darrell School in New Lebanon, New York. I was a senior, so I remember this uh, game four and game five very well. I was at a football game that Saturday afternoon, but I followed. No cell phones in those days, but I certainly followed what Sparky Lyle was up to. Five and a third of scoreless relief. Yankees win. Big game four victory. It's two games apiece. Now, that sets up a winner-take-all game five. It's a Sunday night. That sets up that tremendous game. Royals go back to split off. He won game one. Yankees retaliate with Gidry, and he pitched game two. So remember, a little extra day off. For split off. The other thing that's important in this game is that for whatever the reason, Billy Martin, who never liked Reggie Jackson anyway, did not start Reggie in this game against split off, lefty against lefty. The dumbest thing you ever see in your life. Because you got to remember, Reggie had won three championships for Oakland, and somehow he doesn't play against start against a left-hand pitcher, which is just ridiculous. That's typical Billy. Paul Blair played instead. That's important. A lot of intensity in this ball game. A lot of intensity. Second year in a row, these two teams playing for the pennant, this time a different venue. The intensity was obvious in the very first inning. That ball's going to be over the head of Rivers. I remember I hit a triple off Ron Gidry in the first inning over Mickey Rivers' head in right center. No, it's going to be over Rivers' head. McRae's going to score and press one for third. There was a bang-bang play at third base. Brett went in hard, and both teams are out on the field. Brett went in hard at Nettles, and Nettles kicked him, and that's when the fight started. Billy Martin right in the middle trying to break it up. But the Royals lead one to nothing. I slid in, I did a pop-up slide, and he took offense to it. I knocked him back a little bit, and he kicks me in the face, and I just got up and just threw a haymaker 
right then. Gidry was right there, and, and he was there, and Chuck Hiller, our third base coach, were there. And the next thing you know, we're all got all four of us in a bear hut. Benches clear, players all over each other. It was a mess. Believe it or not, Brett, though, he received some protection from a surprising ally. I'll never forget Thurman Munson getting there and, and he kind of laid, laid his whole body over me so nobody could take any, any uh, cheap wow. shots at me. And uh, my next at bat, he said, you all right? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, I jumped on top of you. Uh, I got over you and I made sure nobody took a cheap shot at, at you because I really admire you as a player. And I said, well, Wow, you. George, that is a but great story. Thurman Munson, who I didn't say... Well, you know, I would say hi to him before games, and I'd walk out my first half bat and say, how you doing, Thurman? And that was about it. But what a class act he was. Hi, Thurman, of course, Yankee All-Star, catcher, leader of that ball club, tremendous hitter, won an MVP. Great player, hard-nosed. The melee concludes. Al Cowens follows that up with an RBI ground out, scores George, and gives the Royals a 2-0 lead in this decisive Game 5. Munson drives home Mickey Rivers in the top of the third, leads 2-1. Bottom half of the inning, Al Cowens has a chance to pad the Royals' lead once again. Cowens, three for 16 in the series, with one home run and four runs batted in now. Yankee infield in. Base hit. McCray scores, and the Royals now lead 3-1. to one. All right, so the game goes now into the later innings. Herzog starts to try to figure out how he's going to protect this lead as he heads to the uh, eighth and the ninth, he saw his game three starter, Dennis Leonard, on either side of the dugout and decided to go have a chat with him. I was in my tennis shoes, you know, which, you know, being a starting pitcher all my life, you know, I was in my tennis shoes on the bench. And then it got to be about the seventh inning and he kind of walked down and he says, how's your arm feel? I said, I don't know. I, I said, I was always fortunate. My arm bounced back really quick. I said, the only thing I could do, Whitey, is go down to the bullpen and loosen up and see what it feels like. But I said, right now, it doesn't bother me. And when I went down there and started throwing, I asked the catcher. Actually, I asked the catcher. I said, am I throwing good? <laughs> you know, because your mind starts thinking you're doing great, but you don't know. And he goes, yeah, you're throwing really good. So, I, you know, they called down to the dugout and said, you know, I'm ready to go. All right, Leonard is warming up. Back to Reggie, Mr. October, who doesn't start the game. Again, the biggest joke in the world. He's at the plate, though, pinch hitting opportunity to uh, do his usual clutch stuff. Deep to center field. Otis comes in. It drops in front of him. It's trapped. Everybody is safe. And uh, Randolph will score. It's a 3-2 ball game. The ball was trapped by Otis. And Reggie Jackson gets a big base hit. So Doug Bird was in this game for Kansas City, a righty reliever. That's why Martin turned to a slugger, and he delivers. MLB Network's Tom Verducci reflects on Reggie's clutch pinch hit. I'm thinking about how impressive it is that Reggie came off the bench in the eighth inning, you know, down two and delivers an RBI knock. I mean, pinch hitting is a tough job, man, especially when you're someone like Reggie Jackson. You don't do a whole lot of it. You probably got smoke coming out of your ears because, you know, you're sitting on the bench facing elimination. You're Reggie Jackson. Come on. So I give him a lot of credit. We know the relationship with Billy and what that was like. And for him to muster up a quality AB and get a knock there is pretty impressive. But, you know, yeah, looking back on it, the fact that he wasn't in the lineup at all, it, it's, it's kind of shocking. All right, here we go, folks. Kansas City leads 3-2, top of the ninth, three outs away from their first World Series. Here comes staff ace Leonard. He had pitched on Friday night. He steps to the rubber to start the inning. 
Alright, now you figure if you're gonna start him, let him pitch the inning. Well, Blair gets a broken bat single, one on, nobody out. Long at bat with Roy White, switch hitter. White was a Yankee for a long time and a good player. He works out an eight-pitch walk. Now Herzog decides to make a change. Two on, nobody out. He has seen enough. Seen enough of Leonard. Things didn't go well for Dennis, but he doesn't regret going out there in the top of the ninth. You leave it on the field, and you know, that was my theory. I'm going to give it all I got. I'm prepared. We all prepared ourselves for it. Uh, you know, the only thing you can do is stay positive. Uh, if you dwell on the past and you dwell on the losing aspect of things, chances are you're not going to win. Did Herzog make a mistake bringing in Leonard instead of a reliever? George Brett doesn't want to even consider it. No, I had, I had total confidence in Wendy Herzog, and he probably had a flashback of what happened in New York in 1976. But I always have the, I, you know, it, it's it's always tough to second second guess. I mean, People were probably second guessing, you know, after the game. Why would they bring in Dennis Leonard? Why would I remember we brought in Dennis Leonard? That's all I remember. To sit around here, and it's 2021. Let me see if I can do the math real quick here. Forty-four years later, to second guess a manager? I mean, I'm not going to do that. Whitey Herzog is a great manager. Uh, he was a great manager when he managed us. He was a great manager when he managed the St. Louis Cardinals. Whitey did what he thought he should do to help us preserve a win, and it didn't work out. Verducci, similar thoughts. That's a tough call. I don't think for as well as they played, he had one, you know, lights-out bullpen guy. I've always thought that's a flip of a coin, Chris, when you don't have that easy Mariano Rivera call to go to. Um, I do like starting, if you're going to use a pitcher out of the pen, I like starting the inning with him rather than keeping in reserve behind a reliever. Um, so, you know, it's tough to question the decision because Leonard had been so good for the Royals all year. All right, Herzog replaced Leonard with Larry Gura. Now, Gura was a good lefty who had given the Yankees fits for years. He attempts to halt the Yankee momentum. Two on, nobody out. The Yankees down a run here in the ninth inning. And it's through the right side. That will tie the ball game up. Paul Blair will score the tying run. Roy White goes to third. And Mickey Rivers has come through again for the Yankees. Now, Gura only faces Rivers as Herzog now pulls him from the game and turns to Littell. Littell, of course, gave up the home run to Shambliss. Uh, would he have more success against Willie Randolph this time around? In the air, center field. That'll get the go-ahead run in as Otis drifts back and makes the catch. Roy White will score. The Yankees lead 4-3. to three. So the wheels come off. The Yankees had another run later in the inning. 5-3, bottom of the ninth. Boy, Whitey used a lot of pitchers here to get three outs. Leonard, Gura, Littell, a lot of people didn't work out for him. Sparky Law, what else is new? On the mound to try to close out the Royals. Darryl Porter pops up, starts the inning. But Frank White singles, and that brings up a little shortstop, and he was a good little player, good offensively. Freddie Patek to the plate with Brett on deck. Round ball to third. Nettles to Randolph. Double play, and the Yankees have won the pennant. Patek's double play ends the game. Royals' hopes of a World Series. Devastation obvious. He just collapsed in the dugout with his face in his hands. A famous photograph. Brett remembers Patek's pain well. That's the picture I remember about the whole series. I mean, that just shows you how devastated we were when we lost to the Yankees that time. 
I mean, he was yeah, he was cut up pretty bad. I know that. I think that was the year that he got spiked pretty bad, and and um, he, he didn't even make it to the locker room. He just sat in the dugout, and somebody took a great photo. I mean, it's you talk about the thrill of victory and the and the agony of defeat. I mean, that's the agony of defeat right there. It's a famous photo, folks. If you don't know it, just go to Google and search Freddie Patek dugout, and it pops right up. It's a great Royal team, great opportunity, two games in their building, get one, they get to the World Series, and have a chance to play for a title. Mm. Not this year. Later in his career, Whitey managed the Cardinals, where Bob Costas caught up to him. I've had many conversations with Whitey, and I want to emphasize, he's not a complainer. He's not, what if that... What if this? What if that? But I have heard him say, you give me the Yankee bullpen and I win those series. Weak bullpen or not, Verducci isn't giving the Royals a pass. I mean, you have to put that series away. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Whitey Herzog used, I think, six pitchers in the last 10 batters of the game. He was trying anybody to stem the tide. He had Leonard coming out of, you know, out of the bullpen at that point. He had Bird. He had Mingori. He had Splitorf. He was trying everything. Uh, and the Yankees just kept coming at him. It was a great comeback by the Yankees, but that had to hurt knowing that they had that game in hand, especially at home. More than 40 years later, Leonard still has some strong emotions about that year. You look back on it, uh, you know, it, it, it bothers you. I, I would say it's not a bothersome thing. It's more of a disappointing when you look back on it, thinking, you know, that really of the teams that I played on and most of all the other Royals that played together for the number of years that's that year we won more games than any other year that we played so you know to to have that momentum and everything going into there having a great like you mentioned that second half of the season going in with a lot of confidence of you know finally you know uprooting the Yankees and you know the disappointment of losing again especially in the ninth inning it hurt but you know what life goes on we knew we were going to play the following year and we went out and tried it again the Royals did give it a go again in 78. They won the American League West. They again lost the Yankees, this time in four games. And obviously uh, in game three, that was the game they had to win. Brett hit three home runs. Munson hit a home run in the bottom of the eighth to win the game. A bomb off Doug Bird. They finally get to the World Series in 80. They finally win a World Series in 85. Matter of fact, in 80, they beat the Yankees. In 85, they finally win a World Series. But only Brett, White, and McCray remained on the team. The rest of the ball club never had the opportunity to celebrate a championship together. The 77 Royals, folks, out of all these teams that made the playoffs, they are the best team they have. And this is a great baseball team. But as we have seen time and time again in this series, if you have issues with your pitching staff and your bullpen, it's going to bite you in October. If the Royals had a lockdown closer, ninth inning, If either 76 or 77, the 76 game goes into extras at Yankee Stadium and the Royals would have won the pennant in 77 and probably won the championship. For more episodes on baseball's greatest teams that never won a title or to listen to previous seasons covering the history of Thanksgiving football in the NCAA tournament, download the SXM app. Free for most subscribers. Download it today and search Digging Up the Past or subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Digging Up the Past is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Bill Zimmerman. The associate producers are Chris Tyler and Andrew Emmer. Sound design is by Matt Damro and Joey DeFazio. 
Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, Vice President of Sports Programming, Eric Spitz, and Mad Dog Sports Radio Program Director, Steve Torrey. 